And it was, you know, a document that some of it was ridiculous, some of it was stupidly sensible, um, but but for whatever reason it resonated and, and uh, nine people decided to come back and move up to Hull to set up set up the company. The whole the whole thing um, could have easily ended after six months, seven months, eight months, nine months. Like at every point there were there were points it could have ended. In those moments of like when you're really down, you're you know your work's not where you want it to be. Why didn't you quit? This industry runs on freelancers, but doesn't always value them. Now, when I say that this is my favourite chapter we have ever recorded, I mean it. I never have any expectations when meeting special guests, but even if I did, they would be far exceeded with Paul Smith. Paul is the artistic director of Middle Child, a forward-thinking, exciting and important company for many reasons. Here we talk about how they're genuinely changing the industry on the stage, but also in the rehearsal room. What they're doing behind the scenes is genuinely changing the industry piece by piece, in my opinion. The mad thing is, Paul admits that six months into their journey, they nearly packed the whole thing in for, air quotes, proper jobs. Luckily they didn't, and lucky Paul is here to share his experience and wisdom with us. This feels like one of the most important episodes to date on the podcast. You will not be disappointed. So without further ado, let's hear from Paul. So hi Paul, welcome to the podcast, welcome to the Director's Diary. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited. Great to be great to be chatting and um, great to be chatting after we've um, submitted our MPOs, which is <laughs> a much better feeling than if we'd have chatted two weeks ago. Great, yeah. Um, let's get onto that in a bit. I'd love to talk to you about that process. Um, first of all, we need to do a little tradition on the podcast, um, which is tell me your life story in two minutes. So for those who don't know you, um, you've got two minutes to tell us. Who you are. So, what, what's your life story, Paul? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Um, so, I was uh, I was born in um, a place called Harlow in Essex, um, and uh, as a kid, I, I loved WWF wrestling. Um, that was kind of my route into theatricality and entertainment. Um, I used to create Stars in Their Eyes shows with my nan, granddad, and my sister. Um, we used to watch Stars in Their Eyes on a Saturday night. We used to make little shows based on that. Um, I went to a standard comprehensive school um, and I used to always get told off there for being chatty, for getting other people in trouble. Um, and I never quite found the sort of the lessons that I were good at. Um, but eventually one day um, I got my mum got told that I was good at drama. Um, and so, you know, like a lot of mums, she t- jumped on that opportunity and signed me up for a drama class at the Harlow Playhouse. Um, Theatre wasn't really a part of my culture growing up, either as a place in Harlow or, or with my family. So I went reluctantly to that to, to that class fell in love with it, had an amazing time there and was there in this period, which was kind of a real hotbed. Um, did lots and lots of stuff there, acted in Bouncers by John Godber, directed Willie Russell's Stags and Hens, did loads of these shows, um, which we can talk about in more detail maybe later. And at the same time, ran this backyard wrestling company where we used to fight each other and film it and write storylines and jump through tables and, you know, did this kind of fake entertainment thing, which may be set up as a um, an early for running a theatre company 
Uh, then went to college and did a BTEC in performing arts. Um, then went to Hull University. Uh, never been to the city before, but I'd heard it was an amazing course, so went there. Um, and while I was there, I directed over 30 pieces uh, just to make the most of the fact that we were given these fully working theatres to experiment with and play with. Um, from there, I went to Lambda um, and did the directing course, had a great time there. Um, until one day, Mike Bradwell, the original founder of Truck, came, gave us a talk, um, which inspired me to set up Middle Child, which has now been going for 10 years. There we go. Two minutes. That was bang on two minutes. Yeah. Um, um... Wow, lots to unpick. So, wrestling, wrestling as a way in—that's that's mental. Talk yeah, it's a, weird, it's a weird one, and um, there's a there's an actor in, in, in our company called Mark Graham who had the same way in, and, and we've spoken a lot about, you know, wrestling's a much maligned thing, and people either love it or hate it. It's kind of one of those things that really it's, it's really marmite. But wrestling for me was, um, I don't know, I like to I like to think of it as working class Shakespeare because it's. Um, it's big stories it's it's heroes and villains but it's accessible and it's playful and it's um I don't know I just I just loved it and found it entertaining and I really loved the storytelling elements of it and you know this guy's just turned on his best friend and this guy's just said this and and for me that was that was that was the way into art really um and it, I can now literally see the track between falling in love with that as a, as a tv program and that as a sort of way into entertainment into how I now feel about about theatre and about art and yeah it, it's it's sometimes I feel embarrassed to talk about it but as I've gotten older I think it's quite quite a, I don't know quite an important thing to talk about because it's not it, it's not always about growing up in a theatre household or in a theatre family that you know you know all the plays and you know all the playwrights and all that stuff so yeah I think that was a really formative part of my life and as I sort of mentioned in in my rushed intro um one of the first businesses I ran was as a sort of 15 to 19 year old running this backyard wrestling company where we would um find dirty mattresses on fields in Essex and beat each other up but filming it and we would develop characters and we would tell stories and it was a real primitive version of what I now make a living doing so it, yeah I don't know it feels it feels like a weird but but useful way in are there moments of middle child's work or are there are there moments of previous shows that you can kind of point towards and go, okay, well, that feeling or that is a kind of essence of how I felt watching wrestling? Is, does it come through into the work in that way? Or was it just a starting point that got you interested? I think it does. I think I think there's a liveness about, about, about wrestling, um, which maybe I've always loved in theatre. The fact that, you know, both of those things happen in front of a live audience and are loud and rowdy and noisy and um, need the audience to exist and um, they're both completely audience centric in a way that mm. maybe some of the theatre that I'm not as enamoured with isn't um, I sort of the theatre I love is the theatre that needs people to be there and it needs the hustle and the bustle and the and the, the live feedback so I guess yeah for me it's really present in everything we do as is um I'm a big football fan I'm a big um live music fan and, and I think all of those things sort of form a, a kind of smorgasbord of what middle child is and, it, and it's all about that live event that is happening here in front of your eyes and if you make a noise we're going to react to it and if you cheer and boo we're going to react to it and for me it, it all ties into those those early influences yeah mm. so that makes complete sense so, so go go into your Let's go into kind of 
18 year old Paul <laughs> or 18, 19 year old? What, what are you doing? Where, where are you in the world? So 19, um, I just moved to Hull University. Um, first time in the north of England, first time in Hull, first time out of Essex, anywhere other than on holiday or to London. Um, and yeah, just moved to Hull University. Um, it was a, it was a last minute decision. I was supposed to go to the University of Essex, but um, four days before starting uni, I just had a change of heart um, because I sort of thought, oh, if I go to University of Essex, I'm just close to where I've always been and close to where I probably will therefore always be. So yeah, four days before I sort of rang up University of Essex and changed my mind and rang up whole university clearing and said, please let me in. You know, I've got decent, decent-ish drama grades um, and they let me in. And so four days later, uh, my parents were in Barcelona on holiday at the time and I phoned them and said, oh, I'm now going to Hull. So I'm going to get the train up on my own. Um, and four days later, I went there to that city on my own um, and, and just started uni. And um, I just... So, so that, that was just the best decision I made, really, because that course, the people that were on that course at the time, the things we were allowed to do there, you know, just absolutely formative in in who I am and, and who Middle Child are. Um, but at 19, you know, I wanted to be an actor. I thought I was a good actor. I thought I would go to whole university, be the best actor there, you know, and then, you know, come out and be, be, be an actor. But that never happened. And while I was there, I just fell in love with directing um, and and just just yeah really found that place as a place to make mistakes and to, to try things and to learn you said uh something there about you know what what we were allowed to do what what kind of things spring to mind oh i mean so whole university at the time we had there was a there was a main space that had flies and and proper rigging and proper like everything that we could just play with and then we had a studio theater that we could do the same with and and they outside of course times we were just allowed to to make stuff and we had like events nights events weeks all these different times where the students would just make things and so much of us just learned by making terrible shows bad mistakes um but but just by doing and doing and doing so you know i directed new writing musicals pantomimes um we, we made kind of weird plays we did shakespeare's just all these things and and all of them were just just riffing, do you know what I mean? Just just riffing and trying them out and just seeing where they went. But but every single time you got a bit better and a bit better and a bit better. So actually by the time I graduated in 2009, I was I was used to directing and I was comfortable and confident directing. And it wasn't necessarily good stuff, but but I was used to being the person who was the director. And that was something that I'd never had as a younger person. Um never had never felt like I had that right, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think a big thing for me leaving uni was kind of similar to you like had directed things but there was a shift of like I don't know if it's the same for you of like calling yourself a director to other people it was like a really big step was yeah, it for you? yeah and, and, I, and I think I don't know some of this may be caught up in class or, or identity but I remember being really embarrassed to to call myself a director or to even really talk seriously about building a career in theatre because that always to me felt like a bit of a a pipe dream and a bit unrealistic so yeah absolutely massive moment I remember first calling myself a director and I think it was probably sometime during my postgrad training at, at, at Lambda um, that I sort of actually felt like I could I had some sort of authority to say it because when you got to uni you just decided what you were some people were like I'm an actor I'm a stage manager I'm a director whatever and and when you just decide that I don't know it doesn't feel like it's valid does it but yeah. 
over the years, I sort of grew more comfortable with saying that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely felt the same. So, so kind of 2000, we're kind of 2009, 2010. So you go to Lambda then. After leaving Lambda, what what do you go on to do? Yeah, so uh, I mentioned in, in the two-minute intro, um, Mike Bradwell, who was the original founder of Whole Truck Theatre, um, he came in towards the end of my time at Lambda and, and had a chat with us. And he'd actually just published an article in The Guardian that was called um, Steal a Van, Squat a Building, Make Some Art. And it was... Um, <laughs> This was at the time of the coalition, so Clegg and Cameron and all of those. Um, you know, we thought we thought that was that was the worst thing that could happen at the time, and obviously things have changed a lot since then. Um, but he was talking about how you know now is the perfect perfect time to set up your own company and make your own work, and that just really resonated with me because I wasn't ever excited by the London assisting route. Um, I kind of always had this idea that I don't know theatre could reach more people, um, and, and I guess that comes from where I grew up and how I grew up with, with theatre not really reaching me and then suddenly discovering it. So his words just really resonated with me. Um, and literally after his meeting, I went straight to a pub in uh, Hammersmith or Chiswick or one of the places near Lambda and um, just got with some friends and just wrote this manifesto for what a theatre company in the whole might look like. Uh, and that was, you know, straight after meeting Mike. And then I just sent that out to loads of people that I'd enjoyed working with at uni and said, look, I'm moving back to Hull who's coming with me, this is what the plans are. Um, and it was, you know, a document that some of it was ridiculous, some of it was stupidly sensible, um, but but for whatever reason it resonated and, and uh, nine people decided to come back and move up to Hull to set up, set up the company. Can you remember some of the initial things? Can you give us a flavour of it? Yeah, I mean, I've got, I'll have to dig the document out somewhere and we'll have to, like, put it online for people to have a look at. But, it, I mean, some of it was like, um, you know within five years we'll have a show on a whole truck and then obviously you know we did that within six months or something like that um there were things that were like you know we will we will change the face of theater in the uk and all of this like it so it went from the really oddly specific and far away to the really grand and massive but i guess that's what being young is isn't it and we and we just had lots of ideas and passions and thoughts and very little um actual plans but but writing down some some passionate thoughts felt like a plan at the time yeah just spoken to Rashdash, who also came from Hull, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, uh, in the same year as us, yeah. In the same year. And their manifesto is very similar, you know, like destroying the patriarchy and dismantling you know, the world, kind of rebuilding the world kind of thing. So it's very, I don't know what's in the water in Hull, but it must be kind of... <laughs> and I think if you're not starting from there, like, where you know, where would you start from? And I think actually I look back fondly on the fact that, that those both of those companies were formed out of world changing ideas rather than pragmatism and, and the pragmatism sort of creeps in as you go but I don't know something something was in the water there because I think we were all given the freedom to do what we wanted but that was also backed up by um quite a quite a well-rounded education within theatre because because when you're at whole uni at the time you you learn how to weld you learn how to build sets you learn how to be a stage manager you learn how to write and act so everybody did everything really certainly in the first year and a half so i think when you see some of the companies that have come out of whole university you know including sun uproar roaring girls middle child rush dash there's quite a lot of companies that have come out of there most of them do so in a really similar way which is that everybody chips in everybody does a bit of everything and and you're not there's no airs and graces at when we were at whole university it was like you all dig in you all do a bit of everything and i think that set us up really nicely there was no early on there were very few oh i, I only do this um and i think that being that flexible and being that dynamic really helps in the early days yeah um, um 
potentially sets you up as a kind of uh, for the mentality of being a freelancer in the arts as well, like kind of like digging in and kind of grafting for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And there's loads of amazing freelancers that we know here in Hull who, again, went to Hull University and they've just got so many strings to their bow. So they work a lot. And it's it's not that they're, you know, just working in one role. They're, they're, they can work across the board. And you know that when you bring them in, you get so many different skills at once. And I think, yeah, it's really a testament to how we were educated in that in that institution. Yeah, amazing. God, I'd love to learn how to weld. That's great skill stuff. Yeah, I mean, don't let me do it now because it's been a while. But <laughs> once yeah. upon a time, I knew. So you you write this manifesto, you take people up to Hull, you, people have signed up for this idea. Um, could you talk us through the kind of first few weeks of setting up is like, in terms of like, how do you choose the name? How did you, you already, already had a manifesto, but how did you, where's that? Um, I guess what I'm trying to say, how did you decide what type of work that you wanted to make? Okay. So we um, we moved up in October of 2011 um, and we didn't really have a plan at all. Um, we decided that our first show would be The Pillar Man by Martin Madonna. Um, so we got the rights for that and we put it on in a warehouse in Hull with very little rehearsal. Um, and we just we had this kind of socialist ideal that we would all just chip in. Um, and there were nine of us, which is a lot for an early formation of a company. It's a lot so, of people. It's a lot of people. And, and actually that was one of the hardest points really for us. But, but, you know, I remember our first meeting, we wrote down all the roles that we thought a theater company would have. And we sort of randomly allocated them, not, not really based on experience or skill or even interest. We just sort of said, right, you're now head of touring. You're now head of finance. You're now head of this. And it was kind of just um, a bit of a lucky dip as to who got what. Um, but again, you know, part of that is ridiculous, but it also speaks to that idea that, you know, we'd come out of whole uni where we just sort of thought, okay, great. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just learn how to do that. Mm. Um, and then we just sort of started making shows. And I think, the, I think what we in that first sort of 12 months or so we just tried stuff and got stuff wrong and failed I think we made like eight shows or I wouldn't even call them shows but eight things in our first year um we didn't pay ourselves at all and we didn't really have a sort of you know we were bouncing from one thing to another we had this general feeling of oh because we're making work we're going to revolutionize who's coming to see it um and, and there just wasn't a clear strategy. So obviously what was happening was when we were doing stuff, the people that were coming were the people that were regular, loyal theatre goers. So they were exactly the people you'd expect to be in any theatre anywhere. Uh, and then as time went on, we sort of we sort of really started to say, look, we're not achieving what we set out to do. What are we doing? Are we wasting our lives? Um, and then that was kind of, I know we'll talk about gig theatre a bit later, but that's when we started to find gig theatre. And, and, and what that really became for us was a way into reaching audiences that we weren't reaching that we were desperate to reach um and the way that we got there was by looking around in our city in Hull at where those audiences were um because they certainly weren't in the studio theatres that we were performing in but we noticed that they were at music gigs and music festivals and um the, the music scene in the city was thriving and the, the it really felt like that's where the younger more diverse audiences that we were craving were so um for us it became about how do we adopt some of that into the theater we're making 
rather than just resolutely making uh, disconnected, self-absolved theatre. Yeah. Can we just backtrack, before we get on to gig theatre, can we just backtrack? So, so you're not paying yourselves, but how are you surviving as people? Ah, oh, um, ju- just about. Um, everybody was doing different things um, from, you know, working in um, cafes, bars, uh, shops to things that we did together like um, we used to run quizzes we used to run workshops we used to do lots of TIE and then often what we would do is just put all the money into a pot and sort of divide it by nine which obviously doesn't go very far um, I remember one of our first jobs was um, teaching a sort of updated recovery position and we did this sort of we devised this dance um, that taught kids how to save a friend if they were choking um, and we did that for a while and toured it around schools and then yeah we sort of split the money between us but often that money would end up going back into productions because um you know we'd have a production budget of 300 pounds for everything and that included pay and set and (laughs) everything so um it was hard and you know personally I was living in my overdraft I was still relying on my career development loan and anniversary that I got while I was at Lambda um some of that was balanced by the fact that Hull is a cheap place to live um in a way that you know would have absolutely drowned in london but in hull it, it, it was different and we could survive on much less money um but you know it, it was hard we were all struggling i think there were points in that first year where we forgot that we liked each other we forgot that we cared about each other we um there was lots of conversations of like what are we doing why did we come back here what's the grand plan will any of this ever add up to anything um because it was you remember difficult moments yeah, I mean, the whole the whole thing um, could have easily ended after six months, seven months, eight months, nine months. Like at every point, there were there were points it could have ended. Um, I was living with two of the guys from Middle Child in a big old house that we couldn't afford to heat. We could see our breath um, whenever we spoke. We you know we couldn't afford to put the heating on. Um, and and to to sort of compound all of that, the work we were making wasn't good. Like we'd seen our friends Rashdash, um, and it felt like at the time, you know they've always been amazing and it felt like they came out of uni and, and, and straight away were making amazing industry shaking industry defining work and we were like ah oh, so what are we doing in these cold houses with no money and, and no one's even talking about our work so you know all of those things added up to feel really really tough um so yeah we could have easily you know folded and no one would have ever noticed so in in those moments because I, I imagine there are quite a lot of people in the arts who have, I mean, I've definitely been in that place of like, I'm going to quit and have a, in quotes, proper job. Um, in those moments of like, when you're really down, you're, you know your work's not where you want it to be. Why didn't you quit? What, what was the thing that kept you going? Um, I think the romantic answer is that we always believed it would work out, but I don't know if that's just time saying making me say that I, th- I think probably the realistic answer is that we we're in too deep um you know we'd we'd moved up there all of us we'd made these sacrifices we'd, we'd told we'd smugly said to people in london like why would you stay in london when you could go to hull and set up a theater company you know we'd been quite <laughs> smug and quite like righteous about the decisions we were making so I, th- I think we were just in too deep and i think in some ways we had to see it out and and we had to stick with it and we had to know whether it was actually going to fail or, or succeed but uh, as, as as romantic as it would be to say now i don't think we were guided by this certainty that it was going to succeed like this yeah I think we were more convinced it wouldn't it was just a matter of when that makes sense but we were in too deep to to abandon it so quickly yeah I mean for me it's I think it's really important to say that 
you only I mean for Riptide as well like you only see the successes because why would you publicize anything else but like the reason for this podcast is like to really uncover the fact that you know you see middle child NPO doing amazing things and you said you know six months in could have all folded it's like wow okay well if I'm if I'm a freelancer now going through a similar thing listening to this it's like okay well there is a there is kind of light if you keep going yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's what, why I love this podcast that you're doing, because it's not the thing that's, we live in an industry where it's so much of its PR and so much of its propaganda and so much of it is like rags to riches and, um, oh, it was always destined to be this way. But I think Middle Child are um, a real product of um, luck and perseverance and circumstance and all of those things. It's not, there's no point that we were definitely going to be a success. Um if anything, quite to the contrary. So, you know, I'm really happy to talk quite openly about that because for us, if I'm honest, all it does is makes any success we have feel feel stronger because we were so close to the brink. And, you know, I, I, you read some um, biographies about people and it seems like they graduate, uh, you know, a, a, a brilliant university and then go straight into a high-profile job and then, oh my and then God, yeah. you know, just straight linear from there. But with Middle Child, it's never linear and it's never it's never going to be linear. It's there's always risks and, and, and there's always challenges, no matter what we put on social media. So in that in that kind of first, at the end of that first six months, what was the turning point of like, okay, yeah, like this is the thing we can do it. So is it is it that realisation that gig theatre was the thing? Yeah, and um, I, I'm always trying, I always trying to be careful about how we talk about this because um, there wasn't a point where we said we need to make gig theatre. That, that, that was kind of a label that was put on our work once we started going to Edinburgh and other people did it and we went oh that's quite a cool thing let's use that but I think um I think it was that period of reflection so um for my mind there's sort of two or three key points so the first one is we got our first arts council funding in October 2012 um and we made a show called Apples which was uh John Ritalik's adaptation of Richard Millwood's novel Apples which was set in Middlesbrough about these kids at school um and it's you know amazing piece of writing and it was the first time we had money so uh we got nine thousand pounds and it's on the wall um over there in the room that i'm sitting in um we got nine thousand pounds and that allowed us to pay ourselves a little bit bring in a designer um pay some people to actually you know who knew what they were doing a little bit um and that show at whole truck studio as a result was the by far the best thing we'd made um and and you know really helped and um that was kind of the first step and it, it felt like it was the subject matter we wanted the form we, we kind of were passionate about but then the next step for us was making our own our own stamp on that because that was a production that had already been you know already happened elsewhere and then the next thing we did was something called Saturday Night Sunday Morning which uh, again the Silito novel um, and we just really lent into this idea of event theatre having having sort of looked at where the audiences we craved were at festivals and gigs we kind of looked at how do we make this a must a must unmissable event like a must go to thing um and, and so we just really lent into this idea of it being a 50s play and we took over this warehouse um, called fruit uh, which is an amazing space in hull um and we had a live band playing 50s versions of modern songs um kind of all about lad culture and how where lad culture began and how the the lad culture now crosses over with the lad culture in the 50s. Um, we had a limbo competition in the interval. We had bingo. Um, we had fancy dress. Uh, we separated our audience um, in gender, uh, just like they would have done in the 50s dance halls. Uh, so the whole thing felt like this kind of really interesting, uh, like event, I guess. And 
it sold out and we got amazing responses and we were like okay this is this is by far the most impact we've had this is by far the most we've been excited about our work and it just felt like something different and something new and this was at a time where people were buzzing about secret cinema and things like that and and it really felt like an experience that had a story at the heart of it Mm. and then after that you know the the, the third sort of piece of that is we made a show called weekend rock stars with luke barnes who we work with a lot now um and that was called an album play and basically you know taking influence from um the streets album a grand don't come for free we made this play which uh, each instead of scenes, each each scene became a track, and and essentially what we did was we performed a live gig on stage with a story at the heart of it. Um, and we took that up to Edinburgh, and the Guardian wrote a piece being like, "Is it a gig? Is it theatre?" And that's where the gig theatre thing came from. Um, and and the show, you know, was flawed in loads of ways, but but it, what it was was interesting and a talking point, and it, it genuinely seemed to start succeeding in bringing different people into into our work and, and that's why we went hang on a minute that's that feels like what we've always dreamt of whereas before I think if I'm honest what we got stuck doing was trying to make the work that we thought uh the theatre press and the theatre industry would like uh we were sort of looking at what was doing well at Edinburgh and trying to like you know make this worthy serious political theatre and that just never was who we were like yeah and and that show really um I don't know really solidified that and 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 then we um Rod Dixon who runs Red Ladder came to see Saturday night Sunday morning and he said wow like what you're doing is straight out of John McGrath's Good Night Out and we were like oh great what's that we've never heard of it and so we went away and read John McGrath's Good Night Out and we were like oh this is everything we care about and that we want to do and so that book has sort of become a bit of a bible for us now and um it it, it was interesting the way around it happened because we would we started doing that stuff and we started uh, doing what Rod, um, what John McGraw was talking about in the seventies, but it but it took Rod to point out that that was already a thing for us to sort of be aware of its of our place within the context. If that makes sense. Mm. A good night out was going to be Riptide's first name, just as a. <laughs> as a okay. We're going to yeah. do that. Um, I mean, and it's one of those books that just keeps coming back and seems to influence so many people of our generation. Yeah. Weird. Just a quick one as well. It would mean the world if you could leave a review on the podcast. It really does help the podcast reach more people. And that is the aim of this. So relying on you to to do that for me. Thank you very much. So so what it, it kind of makes sense to me that back at uni that you were doing, that you were directing all these different things, including musicals and pantos. And then so you've got that skill of combining music and lyrics and storytelling like kind of joining the dots forward you can make sense of it a little bit like knowing knowing the history what yeah I think so and 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 um I spoke for a bit about the hollow playhouse and and when I was there back at home um I used to perform in pantos I was a, I was a chorus boy and I was always the one who got taught the dance moves and then you know a week before the show was got told actually to just clap and click at the back so I was never like you know <laughs> but, but panto actually was um even as a young kid in those shows panto was one of the ones where I was like the the people that come to this like are the people that don't come all year round and, and I sort of really early on clocked that even my mates families and even my mates would come and see the panto when they wouldn't come see anything else and I think that that really sort of stayed with me and you know middle child now have a panto that runs in its 10th year and you know feels like a real fixture here in Hull and, and then at uni yeah doing musicals doing panto things like that um really helped me as from a skills point of view but then also I think you know I've always been really into music and and uh, I've always sort of music's always been a big part of how I work and how I think and all of that stuff so it's just 
it, it was actually a really natural fit, but we just got there the long way around, really. Mm. What's the rehearsal process like at Middlechild? It's, um, I think it's it's very collaborative. Um, it's very, I think people are often quite surprised at how much we uh, we do text and character work because I think people often think with gig theatre, like, oh, it's all about the experience, it's all about the music. But, mm-hmm. but actually, you know, we approach... I'm from a text background as a director and um, we approach work like it's, like it's, you know, a new play. Um, so we, we do do lots of text and character work. We try and make sure that, you know, it's, it's three dimensional, that it's very detailed. Um, so there's kind of that part of it, which is, you know, we do lots of character, lots of, lots of, um, lots of text development, but then the other side of it is, you know, liveness and um, being audience centric and reminding ourselves that we're making this for people, and how do we include people? How do we how do we build a sort of democratic space as much as possible? Um, and then there's all the boring, you know, slow technical stuff like teaching the notes, teaching the chords, building harmonies. It, 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 it's a mix of um, a new writing rehearsal room and a musical theatre rehearsal room. And, and I think that's probably quite quite unique in, in, in a way. But um, I think the other thing to say is that we really do try to... Um, prioritize well-being and and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later but we try to really look after people and we really do try to um you know we do a four-day week um we do check-ins at the start and end of every day and I think one of the things I've sort of really started to believe in over the years is that people need to feel valued and people need to feel heard and everyone in the room has a voice and I think one of the things we really sort of try to practice is is just that complete investment and belief in people and, and and that the whole rehearsal process is just about helping people be the best they can be so let's talk about it because it is that's something quite close to to my heart as well kind of well-being in in a process um i know and i think i know the reason why uh but i'd like to hear you talk about it. so why, why bother do that why i mean it's a great question i i, I think um I think what I find easier is like, you know, why, why not? I think it's, um, I think this industry is hard and people are, it's such, it's such a unique thing to do. Like people are both putting themselves out there as themselves. They're also hiding behind sort of characters and roles and plays and stuff. But, but ultimately, you know, we sit in a room talking about how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about the world. We, um, we, we put work out there that people then write about and talk about and wonder about, you know, the validity of, our identity or the validity of and pick it apart every single thread right it's like yeah Yeah. and and, you know for actors sometimes that's about their bodies sometimes that's about their voices sometimes that's about their politics and and same for writers as well and I just sort of think that for an industry that is so um I don't know people assume it's very left very liberal people assume uh it's very understanding and, and that it um I don't know that that it cares but but some of the horror stories you hear and some of the actors stories that I hear and and some of the places I've worked that you just it's sort of unfathomable to me that that this feels like a new revelationary thing that that people are are prioritizing well-being because you know this industry in in many ways is primed to to genuinely care and look after people but but so often seems to not take that path so i don't know i I think we um try to be really aware of how hard this is Um, and it's a different kind of hard to like being a nurse or or a paramedic or something but it it is hard in, in, in its own unique way and i think maybe um we are also 
kind of rooted by our early failures and how much that hurt us personally and how much, you know, we cried ourselves to sleep at night and how much difficulty we found when people said bad things about our work or, or when people, you know, didn't like what we did. And, and I think maybe that sort of stays with us a bit. Whereas, I don't know, I wonder if we'd have succeeded fresh out of the gate and, and smashed it. And I wonder how much, if we'd have lost some empathy along the way. But, but yeah, I, I think one of the things I'm proudest about isn't, isn't reviews or awards or stars or any of that stuff. Actually, it's, it's that most of the time when, when people work with middle child, they, they, come back and say they had a lovely time they'd love to come back again and, and that they really felt valued and I, I do worry sometimes that we don't have a way of measuring and judging that in this industry uh, and that sometimes if a show gets a good review and wins awards but everyone had an awful time and felt terrible doing it that sort of story doesn't get told and and, and I, I just I don't know I think we could look at what we value in this industry sometimes 100 percent 100 percent what are the what are the practical things in in rehearsals that you, t- you spoke about kind of check-ins and four-day week what are the practical things that that help that for you yeah I think I think it's it's kind of holistic I think it's about um I think there's a simple guiding principle hopefully which is just always assume that people are doing their best um so there's a thing that one of the things that I got taught at Lambda was like if you if someone comes in late they're already feeling rubbish. They probably didn't set out to be late. So if you then lay into them and say, why are you late? And you scream at them, they're going to be worse. You're going to have a bad version of them for the rest of the day. So if you just assume that, you know, they probably wanted to be here on time, something's got in the way, life gets in the way and just kind of don't mention it or just say, you know, don't worry, it happens or, or whatever, then um, you you lessen the problem rather than build the problem. And, and I think that sort of speaks generally to how we approach things. It's that let's have patience with people let's look after people let's um let's make sure that at the end of the day we don't just ask how our lead actor's doing but let's ask how every single person in the room no matter what job they're doing is doing let's let everybody feed in and and i think i think what you get then is is buy-in and teamship and teamwork and i think it's all about like we're doing this thing together and you know we're, we're on the same side so let's let's work together as a team um things like the check-ins you know it, it can be quite a risky thing to uh ask how everyone is at the start of the day or or even for myself to open up and say actually I'm not feeling great today because some people think that the leader should sort of be anonymous and be separate from that but I always find that if people come in and I don't know say they've just had been sat in a traffic jam and they've got worked up just having that moment where they can say hi everyone just so you know I'm bringing into the room a sense of fury at this traffic jam <laughs> dissipate and everyone sort of says oh yeah I know how you feel and whereas if they're hiding that and if if they're burying it deep down then you're sort of as a director you're battling with this unknown subconscious a little bit aren't you you're going why does the actor not feel quite right this morning or or what's going on in the room and I think sometimes we just just by creating a little bit of space to to say how people are feeling again I think can have a huge impact um and then just just basic stuff like uh we try and make sure people know when they're going to be paid and then not deviate from that. Um, you know, we, we set hours and we, we, we don't go over them. And, um, even like the four day week, um, there's quite a few different reasons we do that, but one of them is it's easy to forget that actors are the people who have to work all day in the rehearsal room. And then they have to go home and sit and learn their lines for hours of an evening. And actually just by doing a four day week, it means that they just get that little bit more space, um, to, learn the lines and to to take in the th- stuff they've been doing today but also to to rest and just to take it easy a little bit and um ever since we've started doing it i've just noticed that we've never had someone 
come in and be like, oh, I, I can't get my lines, I'm too tired, I'm exhausted. Like the the energy that people are bringing into the room just feels so much better from my perspective. And it feels like they're not going home, cramming till midnight, getting up, coming straight to rehearsals, cramming all weekend, and just getting the different, a different energy from people. What hours do you do when you're working? We do nine till six, uh, Tuesday to Friday. Um, and we started it as an office thing, first of all. Um, and we'll talk about Pippa and uh, Parents in Performing Arts and some of the stuff we're doing with that a bit later, I'm sure. But um, we started it with that in mind because lots of us are becoming parents and carers and we're trying to, you know, do as best as we can to make sure that the industry doesn't lose people because of how little it kind of uh, responds to what it means to be a parent and a carer. And my, I was, I was always nervous at the time about what the impact would be on rehearsals. Um, and you know, I've always been like, I need four weeks, I need five days, I need this, and then I can do it. But actually, it's only been positive, and and the feedback we've had from actors has been that as well, because they now have a life, a better work life balance. They can, I don't know, you tidy the house on Saturday, and then you have Sunday, Monday as your weekend, or or you know, whatever you want to do. It just gives that little bit more space. Like I said, the line learning. Um, it just it just allows people to breathe a bit more, and I think in this industry too often we we don't allow space for that, and and actually the show still gets made, and it, it gets made with people who have a bit more energy and a bit more headspace. Yeah, and I think the analogy is because um, the the argument against that is that oh you won't be as productive, right? But the I think the the analogy is, would you want your sports team, whoever you support, to be working and training every single day? Well, you, no, probably not. You'd want them to be rested and fully functioning and to be sleeping more and to have more time outside. You'd want them to be better prepared, right? Like, <laughs> makes yeah, sense. And, it, and it's definitely cut down on those horrible rehearsals you sometimes have where you sort of go everyone's just knackered and everyone just feels terrible and everyone just um, is worried about the fact they haven't had a chance to go to the bank or clean their thing or walk their dog or see their nan or whatever these things are like whereas mm-hmm. suddenly just having that extra bit of space means that everyone can do that so when you get them and this is how I feel about my work having moved to four day a week is that when I'm working I am working right I am there I'm just I'm just fully within it whereas before when it was a five and two five days on two days off I was cramming everything into that weekend and, and you were sort of doing active rest, like I must rest, I must stop. Um, <laughs> when you've got three days, it just gives you that little bit more room and it means that I can just totally focus Tuesday to Friday fully on on, on the work, nothing else. That's amazing. Um, and that's something that you have brought in since becoming an MPO or, yeah? Yeah, in the last sort of two years really, um, our executive director who's currently on maternity leave, Lindsay, um, something that she's kind of practiced for a while now and she she just suggested that we trial it and we trialled it um, across the team and you know it works in different ways for different people for different reasons, like quite a few of our staff have got have got kids and you know even if it's one, one day saved of childcare or one extra day yeah. spending time with their kid, like that's a massive difference and if you add that up over a year, you know that's 52 extra days, like it's, yeah, it's a lot Um, um so becoming an MPO, for those who don't know what an MPO is, you mentioned it at the start. So what what is what does MPO stand for? What does it mean for you? How do you get into it? What is it? So an MPO is uh, the National Portfolio Organisation, um, and it's the Arts Council's regularly funded organisations. Uh, it used to be for four years, but then a pandemic happened. So the latest um, version is going to be three years. Um, and you yeah, you apply every third year to, to rejoin that um that organ that portfolio 
um, and yeah, we we became an NPL organisation in 2018, um, and we get given 152,000 pounds a year from the Arts Council, which um, when we first got it felt like loads of money, um, and has allowed us to have um, a level of stability that we never had previously because before you know we were bouncing from project grant to project grant and always pretty successful with those but never with the certainty that you were going to be successful so um you could never really plan beyond sort of six months really um and yeah so we so we've just both of us have just finished um applying for the latest round um so we've now got a, a stressful wait until october uh, <laughs> to find out if we're back in um and and yeah so it's it's I think it's a really good thing. I don't think it's right for everybody, but for a company like Middlechild, where our ambitions have always been long term, um, I think it it it's the only way we could have survived, really, because we've always been about making long term change in our city, developing audiences over a long period, developing writers and artists over a long period. Um, so it's the only way that we could really have actually made it work. So it's a really big thing for us. Um, but at the same time, you know, we get 152 grand a year our staffing costs are about 155 grand a year. So when you start putting your application together, you're already in a three grand deficit and you haven't got any activity or any building or anything yet. So it, it's and not- that's it's, just to pay people. That's yeah. just, there's no, no venue, there's no, you know, you can just pay people's time. That's just, that's just four people. Um, we have a we have a core staff of four, yeah. um, and then we have two part time. So we have a finance manager and a literary manager. So that's like that's a team that isn't big enough really, um, and that that is our starting point. So essentially, if we get the MPO, we then everything else has to then either pay for itself or or we have to find other ways of getting bringing funding in. So how do you do that? I'm just I've yeah just done the MPO bid, so I kind of know a little bit. But there's a whole idea about match funding, which is bit more prevalent than a project grant so it's a kind of it's more like a business proposal isn't it? it's more like a you you're changing your your company into a business that is self-sufficient with that kind of investment I guess you well it is an investment isn't it that's kind of invest in the company and they want a return um, yeah. so how yeah. how are you doing that in for middle child yeah I mean it's 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 multifaceted and uh it's it's difficult I mean so we get we get 30 grand from the local council the local authority which is um you know amazing that we still get that because I know that um in lots of places that uh has, has diminished over the years but you know whole city council have always been really supportive so we get 30 grand from them um we then you know we try to generate money through ticket sales so we, we make one big show and our christmas show every year so we try to generate some money from that but but generally those shows wash their faces so rarely do we, you know our shows turn a big profit or anything like that they sort of they sort of pay for themselves at, mm. at, at, at absolute best um a few years back we started uh, a program called middle child mates um which is a sort of low um, sort of small giving from individuals really but we've been really touched by the amount of people that give you know a little bit a month um, to, to because they believe in the company and you know ironically lots of those people are freelancers or are people who you know they're not necessarily people who have huge salaries or in you know you know secure jobs or anything like that so um, we've been really touched by the amount of people that have decided to give and, and sort of support the company in that way um, it's the thing called theatre tax relief which is where you can claim back uh, a certain percentage of what you spend on making art and that's a huge boost for theatre organisations and, and that actually got doubled in the last year because of the pandemic to help us come back so that's you know really useful 
But and then there's fundraising targets. You know, there's applying to trusts and foundations. There's trying to get grants in, but it's very competitive and especially post pandemic. So it's only getting harder and harder. And especially with how much the price of things are going up, you know, uh, it, it's likely that most organisations that stay in the portfolio will get a standstill. So what that means is that if, for example, that's what we get, um, it means that we'd have been at the same level of funding for eight years in total once that period finishes. And obviously we know that certainly in the last few months, things prices have shot through the roof, let alone, um, yeah, got cheaper or anything like that. So actually a standstill in many ways is a, is, a, is a loss to what you're actually bringing in because everything else is more expensive. So I'm not going to lie and say that MPO is a magic bullet and that everything's easy and that we're we're rich you know it's every day every week every month is a struggle and we have to be really careful and we have to every 20 quid that is spent we have to you know sense check and is that the right thing to do and you know can we afford that so it's never easy and it's never you're never you're never set at this level if that makes sense um especially on the back of a pandemic yeah i I guess it's a different gear change isn't it it's a longer term planning for three years rather than six months one year um yeah and and i guess the i mean the conversation that i was having internally was you know we're, we're, i mean me and you are both from founder-led companies um so is it i mean npo for us as an individual is probably a good thing because we get to have a salary and we get to on the individual level we get to take home x amount for a year for three years but then is it the right thing as a business like so we're going for something like, I think we were going for 95 a year. It's like, well, could I put in two arts councils that would be that or even more than that? You know, it's like, uh, is it the right thing? <laughs> like, <laughs> there were years that um, we, got, we got more money from arts council through grants than we do now through MPO. So there was definitely a sort of like, in, in some ways it's, a, it's less money, but at any point before they could have turned around and said no. Um, whereas now you know that, and, and like I say, that was the decision we made that it's better to have security and it's better for like, yes, for our, our staff, but also for the artists we work with to have security and say that if we commission you, the show will happen. Whereas yeah. one of the things I found hardest before was saying like, you know, we're going to commission you to do this, but it'll only happen if we get this bid and this bid and this bid. And, and, and that means it's not just the people who run the company that are constantly holding on and waiting, but obviously, you know, the, the actors, writers, stage managers, everyone that's kind of attached to that bid then wait and so people can only live their lives in six months six months six month blocks really can't they and and that's being generous whereas i like to think that what little child being an mpo has done is um given a certain sense of stability to the people that we work with in that you know this can happen and, and this can happen for sure and for certain and and what something else that you've done is um well, you've done a lot of things, I think, as MPO, but so we've spoken about the kind of well-being and looking after people on the four-day week. But another thing is being a, a PIPA champion, right? It's the championing that. Um, do, you, do you want to speak a little bit about um, what that is and what, what that means for you guys? Yeah, um, I think we are, as a company, we're fully aware that of the impact that having a child has on people in the arts historically. Um, you know, for, for a long time, that, that led to many people having to stop stop working in the arts altogether. And obviously, that's not OK. Um, at, at the same time, we also hit the age where most of middle child, most of the people we work with either have or are in the process of having children. And, and that obviously brings a different challenge that 
the way we worked in the early days just isn't sustainable because people have caring commitments and people can't just we can't expect people to just work nine till midnight every single day and uh, give up everything else in their life and just focus on making this weird dream happen um so part of it is because we see the world and care about the world and want to make it want to make our industry a better place to work but the other part of it is also like a pragmatic thing and we want to get the best out of the people we work with we want to um show them that they can still continue to work in the arts even with having a family um so it's a bit of both of those things but um and we've got lots to learn like I don't want to pretend that we're perfect that we've sorted it every day we're learning stuff and we're sort of questioning and challenging every part of our organization and you know what what is designed to help or hinder parents like when do you set meetings when do you uh when do you start what's the start time for your show how long do tech rehearsals run like all these different things and we're just kind of going through and um questioning how all of these things help or hinder people who have caring commitments um and how do you do that is that feedback from people who are in that situation is that is that just listening to them and their needs how, how do you do that yeah it's listening it's asking i think it's also um it's common sense actually sometimes like it's it's saying are we doing this this way because it's how it's always been done or because it's the best way to do it and and I think I mean that's something as a company we've always tried to do even when we talk about gig theatre it's kind of a holistic approach to making theatre accessible and and sometimes there are some accepted uh, truths within things like theatre like oh why do we always start at half seven why do we always um do our audience know what a preview is do they know what a press night is like it's language and I think it's the same with with what we're doing with Pippa and 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 parents and carers I think let's just challenge the things that are accepted wisdoms and and just interrogate whether there could be a better way of doing this Um, we've also included things like flexible working so um, you know around school pickup we've just accepted that um, some members of our team will have to disappear at um, you know half two till half three something like that to go and get their kids because otherwise you know who's doing that Um, we're trying to give people more notice about schedules and trying to say to them, um, this is the time we'll be working and, and not going beyond that. We're trying to let them know well in advance of accepting the job, what will be expected of them so that they can make plans around that. Um, we're doing a maternity leave case study with Pippa at the moment. Um, so our, as I mentioned, our executive director, Lindsay's on maternity leave and we're doing a case study where sort of she talks to Pippa and we talk to Pippa kind of independently about what's going well, what could be better. And then eventually we'll share that as a case study with the wider industry. And that's specifically around um, maternity leave in executive positions, because it's some, I think people generally seem to know how to deal with it uh, in, in a lot of roles. But when it's someone at the very top of a small organization, like what, what impact does that have? Uh, and I guess the other thing to say is that Pippa have just been brilliant in the advice they give, the questions they ask. They're, they're a real kind of critical, supportive friend who, you just know that they're there for you and they, they're not going to judge the questions we ask or, or any of the mistakes we make along the way. But um, the aim is to work with them to show that this industry can be inclusive and, and that you don't get to a certain age and a certain point of having a family and have to either cut back or leave entirely. Yeah, that's really cool. Really important. God, a lot of things that you're doing are having a real impact. It seems like a lot of kind of real change in the industry. Like it's really, really cool. Um, Thank you. So uh, we're going to finish with a question. So I want, it's a bit of a thought experiment. Um, could you imagine that you're 18 years old again? <laughs> yeah. But you're 18 in 2022. What would Paul do differently or what would your advice be to 18-year-old Paul? Um. 
Well, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to work out. Uh, I'm trying to ignore who I was at 18, so I don't think that's useful. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think, you know, I feel so much for people trying to make it work in this industry right now. Um, I think post-pandemic, it's so tough. I think there's so many challenges. Um, I think, I guess there's sort of two parts to it. I guess, you know, to, to anybody out there now trying to trying to make it work, I think, I don't know if it's for me to give advice as such, but I think I think one thing I would say is like hold companies like ours to account, um, make demands of of us, tell us tell us what you need, tell us tell us what we're not doing and what we could be doing better. Because I think it's important that we acknowledge that we get public money to serve audiences and to serve theatre workers. So you know it's it's literally our duty to listen to you. And I think this industry runs on freelancers but doesn't always value them. Um, so I guess, you know, and, and this is something I definitely wouldn't have done at 18, but I think it's about making sure you talk to those that will listen and finding ways to be heard by those who won't. Um, and and I, I think just rejecting that cap in hand thing, because I, I know when I was 18, I was just happy to be in the room or happy to be speaking to somebody who worked in a theatre or just happy to, you know, them to acknowledge that I exist. And, and I think we need to get rid of that Um we need to get rid of that damaging hierarchy within this industry, I think, because, you know, companies, no matter who they are, how prestigious they are, how important or well-paid they are, need freelancers. They, they rely on freelancers. They rely on young people with new ideas. They rely on talented people with, you know, the bravery to do what they do. So I think both to my naive, stupid 18-year-old self, but also to anyone out there now, like, I think it is just about knowing and valuing that you are a vital part of this industry and that you have... A right to demand more and to expect more from the people that are given the money in this industry um like i wouldn't change anything we, we've had this weird messy challenging journey but i'm so happy with where we're at now that i'd hate the risk of changing anything because uh who knows what the impact of that would have um but but i think i think the thing to say to my 18 year old self is not to I don't think that we should congratulate or berate ourselves too much at any point along the way. And I think that's something we've really found with middle child. Like when things have been good, we've really tried to keep the success within context of possible imminent failure. And we've really tried to keep the failure within the context of possible imminent success, because you never know when your next failure or your next success is around the corner. So just, just don't let yourself congratulate or berate yourself too much at any point. Amazing. I love that. Something I'm going to steal from you. It's great. Thank you so much for your time today, Paul. It's honestly uh, really, really interesting, insightful, honest. Thank you for your generosity. Um, and yeah, uh, people, I mean, you've got a website where people can find, you've got a show on the minute, haven't you? Um, there, sh there should be unicorns. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, thanks for having us. It's been great just to chat. And, and I think it's so important that we talk honestly and we have these these conversations. So, yeah, thanks thanks for having us and giving me the time to, to warble on a bit. Um, yeah, we've got a show at the moment, There Should Be Unicorns, which is touring around the country. Um, but also, just check out what we're doing on social media. And, and I'm always available. My, my email is paul at middlechildtheatre.co.uk. So uh, if there's anything I've said here that resonates or doesn't resonate or, or people just want to have a chat, then please do get in touch. Like, always, always happy to, to have a conversation. Awesome. Well, cheers. Thanks for your time. Thank you.